VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. America is at a crossroads. Political and cultural rifts have prevented progress on major issues, and they are now threatening democracy. But... There is a solution. Cooperation and compromise begin with honest conversation. Welcome to The Unconvention, a gathering of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. Live from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is a special edition of the Michael Smirconish Program. Where it's time for common sense to be heard. Thank you. Okay, full full disclosure. I did ask that they applaud, just so that everybody would and and you know that to be the case. But I think you meant it. Welcome to Philadelphia. Welcome to the National Constitution Center. Welcome to the Unconvention. And ladies and gentlemen, the reason you're all really here, she's right there, TC. Thank you very much, SiriusXM. I said that I had some things that I wanted to get off my chest. Many that you've heard me say before, but this gathering has motivated me to organize my thoughts about where the country is and what needs to change. So you will need to allow me to be a bit speechy in this hour of the program instead of my usual seat of the pants and off the cuff. My thoughts are well suited to the unconvention. It's an idea that I first had about a year ago. It occurred to me that there are regular gatherings for R's and for D's, not the least of which is an annual convention every four years. In other words, the partisans responsible for the status quo, they get together and they command the spotlight. But what about the rest of us? You know, what about the 42% who told Gallup that we're not R's or D's, but I's. What about the silent majority? What about the exhausted majority? Where do we go to be with one another? When do we get to hang and talk about fixing what those partisans have created? That, in a nutshell, is what the unconvention is all about. And that seed of an idea is what led to today. This is an event, and those of you who are here with me in Philadelphia are soon to see, that could never have been possible without the Bipartisan Policy Center, led by Jason Grumet, and Unite America, led by Nick Troiano. And my colleague, Steve Scully, of course, hangs his hat by day at the BPC. They have been phenomenal. 
The building is so well staged, as those of you who are here in Philadelphia are soon to see, and the speakers that will unfold throughout the course of the day, it's extraordinary. It exceeds any expectation that I could have had a year ago. So thank you, BPC, and thank you, Unite America. As I'm speaking, the formal program is getting underway in an adjacent hall for which 750 immediately registered, that is the building capacity. Another 1,000 are registered virtually. So there's great interest, obviously, in what we're trying to do. And it's nice to have all of you truly in the birthplace of liberty, blocks away from Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and Stephen Singer. <laughs> so I have, uh, it's funny, this is all I know. I've spent my entire life in a 50-mile radius here, born and raised in one suburb, went to school in a more distant suburb, came back into the city of Philadelphia to go to law school and then stayed, got married. My wife and I moved to one suburban community and then another, but, but all within a 50-mile radius. I never set out to be a talk radio host, and yet as I explained in Things I Wish I Knew Before I Started Talking, maybe it was always in the cards. I grew up in the Philly Burbs. Mom worked as a secretary at the county library and then launched a remarkable career as a realtor, still working today, by the way, showing property today. My father, a public school teacher, then guidance counselor in the public schools. And at night, my dad ran the adult education, or GED, program at the county jail. And a few of the inmates at the county jail, on work release, often did small renovation projects at our home. Three bedrooms, one bath, 25 feet, separating us from the Wrigley's on one side and the Shuts on the other. I remember that one of the inmates had a really cool name, Coleman Foley. And I like that name, Coleman Foley, so much that when I wrote my novel, Talk, there was a Coleman Foley in the book, only now he was the governor of Pennsylvania and running for the presidency. That was my tribute to Coleman Foley. The real Coleman Foley had on work release hung paneling from Kmart in our basement. And it became a rec room. And that's where you'd find my brother and me every Saturday morning, sitting on beanbag chairs and watching pro wrestling. And the pro wrestling of that era was the pro wrestling of the living legend, Bruno San Martino, Haystacks Calhoun, George the Animal Steel, and my favorite, Chief J. Strongbow. There were good guys and there were bad guys. There was no in-between. You could often tell the bad guys because they often had managers. The Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Classy Freddie Blassie. The Captain Lou Albano. And sometimes my parents would take us to matches where I would try and get autographs from both the good guys and the bad guys. These are some of the fondest memories of my childhood. And who knew that I would go on to make my living in the media equivalent of pro wrestling. <laughs> because that's what talk radio and some parts of cable television news have become. It's all about entertainment. One side is virtuous, the other side is evil. And the outcome of every match is predetermined depending on which channel 
you're tuned into. The big difference is that, you know, back then, the adults, our parents, they knew that pro wrestling was fake, and they treated it accordingly. Today, viewers, listeners, don't separate the news from the opinion that they get in the media, and too often, that polarized media is setting the national tone. Now, to be sure, and I address this on a regular basis on radio, there are other factors that have driven our polarization. They include, in no particular order, social media. I mean, we learned from Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, that algorithms were manipulated to accentuate the angriest of voices. That's what spurs engagement, anger cells. And not only does social media throw gasoline on the fire of partisanship, but it also impacts our kids' mental health in negative ways. Gene Twangy, I often cite this book. It really made an impact on me. iGen. She makes the point that 2012 marked the year when more than half of America had cell phones. For the first time, we reached that milestone. And that coincided with steep declines in teens hanging out with friends, dating, and having sex, which at first blush may sound like a good thing, but it's not. As she wrote, rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. So social media is a driver of polarization. Here's another cause. A lack of campaign finance reform, which causes nonstop fundraising and allows little time for representatives socializing with one another. A caller made reference to this within the last two days. And I said, when I get to the unconvention, I want to address that. They're in session only Tuesday through Thursday, and roughly according to a school calendar. They don't socialize with one another. They don't have a cocktail together. And it becomes much easier to demonize someone that you've never met or spend time with. We need campaign fundraising, campaign finance reform. Closed primaries are a problem, you know, enabling the ideologues to be nominated and the centrists to be shut out of the process. There'll be a lot of conversation today at the unconvention about the need for open primaries. We all know about gerrymandering, the partisan drawing of legislative boundary lines, but self-sorting is even more of a problem where people are living near and associating with the like-minded. And as a result of all of this, Americans have drifted apart from one another, making our differences seem more pronounced than I argue they actually are. And that's my focus today. When I got started 30 years ago in talk radio, personality mattered, not ideology. The hosts weren't on air because they shared a political perspective. They were on air because they could sustain a conversation, tell stories, and make those phone lines ring. That was the sole objective. On the station where I cut my teeth here in Philadelphia, 96.5 FM, WWDB, we had a liberal, a conservative, a libertarian. We had a movie show, a real estate show, a travel show. We even had a sex show. 
which was kind of funny because it was, it was hosted by a physical therapist. Some of you from Philly may remember, the late, great Dr. James A. Corey. He was a physical therapist, you know, four days a week, and then suddenly he became a sex guru on Thursday nights, I think it was. Tommy McDonald, Tommy McDonald, who is here, it just occurs to me, running, right, the audio for today. Tommy, shout out. You remember Dr. James A., of course, because you used to produce for him. The advice, by the way, that I remember, guys, take a shower and wear cologne. (laughs) It worked for me. It worked for me. There were no political litmus tests. That's my point. Our evening host, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., was Bernie Herman. Bernie Herman, his brand, we didn't call it that then, his shtick, the gentleman of broadcasting. And I used to guest host for Bernie while I was practicing law, you know, getting home at 2 a.m., getting up at 6 the next day and trying cases. Crazy days. But my point is, can you imagine a young man or a young woman wanting to get into this business and you get the meeting with the program director? Oh, what's the show going to be? I'm the gentleman or gentlewoman of broadcasting. Trust me, you're not getting the call back, right? AM radio was dying when I was getting my start in the late 80s. Listeners were flocking to FM. AM needed a savior and got one in Rush Limbaugh. The former promotions director for the Kansas City Royals had a natural gift for entertainment. You might disagree with his politics, but he was a master entertainer. I watched him speak without notes in front of a crowd of 2,000 at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia. He He had them spellbound. Such was his gift. He quickly became the number one talk show host in Sacramento. Interestingly, got the gig because Morton Downey, you remember Morton Downey, probably more from television than you do from radio, but Downey actually had a radio program when he got fired for insulting a local politician. They brought in Limbaugh. He was immediately successful in Sacramento. His program was then placed into national syndication. The year was 1988. And his impact on talk radio was transformative. Pre-internet, before Fox News, long before satellite radio, conservatives, I say, rightfully felt as if they'd been shunned by the mainstream media. And Rush filled that void by establishing a clubhouse for conservatives. And soon every market in the country would have Limbaugh and a stable of his imitators. I remember Philadelphia was the last major market to take his program. And I was just getting started, and we were owned by a a mom and pop, Chuck and Susan Schwartz, wonderful couple. They didn't want to take him, but they knew if they didn't take him, a station across town would take him, and in this new sort of genre of talk radio, probably put them out of business. When cable television launched a few years thereafter... Fox News was run by a former Limbaugh TV producer because Rush briefly had a television program. His name, Roger Ailes. And so when Ailes went to Fox, as Fox was beginning, he took a page out of Limbaugh's radio playbook. MSNBC struggled initially. You might not remember 
One of their, their initial uh, big personalities was Phil Donahue. Wasn't working. They then replicated from the left what Fox was having success in doing from the right. Good for ratings, good for revenue, bad for the country. I said that 1988 was the year of Russia's syndication. Coincidentally, that year was also the first presidential cycle in which a brash New York real estate developer said that he was contemplating running. Donald Trump started that speculation by making a trip to New Hampshire to address the Portsmouth Rotary Club at a seafood restaurant called Yokins that had a big sign out front that said, There she blows. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> of course, Trump didn't run in 88. He went back to building his fortune. But he went back to New Hampshire in every successive cycle saying that he was contemplating running for president. 92, 96, 2000, 04, 08, 2012. Always sparking interest. Now, of course, along the way, he'd outgrown his developer persona. He'd undergone a career change. He was now the host of the wildly popular Celebrity Apprentice TV show. And this is my point. All the while that Trump was threatening to run for president over the span of three decades... The groundwork for that eventual run was being done on the airwaves by provocative personalities who paved the way. And by 2016, enough Republican primary voters were ready to vote for a candidate who sounded just like their favorite talk radio host, Donald Trump. And that's my thesis. You've heard it from me before in bits and pieces, it happens to be shared by my friend, Dr. Brian Rosenwald, who earned his PhD studying talk radio and wrote the book Talk Radio's America. If we were to chart on a graph the rise in polarization in Washington, it would correlate with the broadcast changes that I'm describing. Today, every Senate Republican is more conservative than every Senate Democrat. Every Senate Democrat is more liberal than every Senate Republican. Joe Manchin might be the exception, I acknowledge. And the House is similarly divided. It hasn't always been this way. According to the National Journal, which used to track congressional voting in the 1980s, on Ronald Reagan's watch, 60% of the House and Senate comprised of centrists. It was a different era. Back then, Ronald Reagan was perceived as the conservative champion. And the, the liberal leader, the liberal lion, was Tip O'Neill from Massachusetts. They got along. So much so that for Tip O'Neill's 69th birthday, Reagan hosted him at the White House and proposed an old Irish toast. He said, Tip, if I had a ticket to heaven and you didn't have one too, I'd throw mine away and go to hell with you. <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, Obama and Boehner, Pelosi and Trump having such a moment of McCarthy and Biden. Maybe we get ready for that. There were so many Republican Senate moderates during Ronald Reagan's time in the White House that they had their own weekly gathering. They called it the Wednesday Lunch Club. And you'll know these names. Alan Simpson, Ted Stevens, Nancy Kassebaum. From Pennsylvania, both John Hines and Arlen Specter, Bob Packwood, Bob Dole the Wednesday Lunch Club. 
Today, there'd be no one meeting for lunch. Before it all got so polarized, members didn't feel an obligation to support something just because it came out of their party's caucus. Typical was a Texas congressman who overlapped between the Democratic LBJ years and the Republican Nixon years. This representative was a Republican who voted with each of those administrations roughly the same amount of time. He was typical. His name, George Herbert Walker Bush, later President 41. Those days are gone. Today, Democrats and Republicans vote with their colleagues 90 plus percent of the time. I don't see correlation between the rise of a polarized media and a polarized Washington. I see causation. And I'm not the only one. Former Republican House Speaker John Boehner said as much in his memoir. And the late John McCain agreed. You might remember one of his final Senate appearances in 2017. The 80-year-old had just been diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer, a geoblastoma. He spoke to his colleagues with a surgical scar above his left eye, lamented the passing of the days when the Senate was the world's greatest deliberative body. He said things had become more tribal, more partisan. And then John McCain took aim at the provocateurs. He said this, quote, Stop listening to the bombastic loudmouths on the radio and television and the Internet. To hell with them. They don't want anything done for the public good. Our incapacity is their livelihood. Our incapacity is their livelihood. Truer words have never been spoken on the floor of the Senate. McCain knew that men with microphones, because it's a male-dominated industry, have too much influence. And when the politicians take their cues from the pro-wrestling and the modern media, then the nation suffers. They divide us. Consider this. I'll bet most of you who are here with me in Philadelphia from across the country or listening right now on radio across the country, I'll bet most of you live in an area that was won handily by one of the presidential candidates in the last cycle. And that's because landslide counties, counties where the margin of victory is 20 or more points, they are on the rise. We've got about 3,000 counties in the United States. And remember, unlike legislative boundaries, your state representative, your congressional, county boundary lines don't change. We don't go through a process every 10 years. They are fixed. In 1980... 1980, there were just 391 landslide counties out of the 3,000. 1980, 391. In 2020, there were 1,726. We are living among the like-minded. Or, my favorite way to illustrate the issue with a hat tip to David Wasserman from the Cook Political Report... Cracker Barrel versus Whole Foods. They build in different areas. They cater to different clients. You know, ask yourself, are you a Cracker Barrel or Whole Foods person? If you live in an area that has both, and I do, 
Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, then I argue you live in a swing area. The gap between Cracker Barrel and Whole Foods areas grows every election cycle. In other words, when Papa Bush ran against Bill Clinton, 1992, the margin between those communities, those counties that had a Cracker Barrel versus a Whole Foods, there was only a 19% gap between the two. 1996, the gap goes to 23. 2000, 31%. 2004, 39%. 08, 43%. 2012, 46%. 2016, 54%. 2020, 57%. That's not the drawing of arbitrary, politically inspired boundary lines. There's something else going on out there. Self-sorting. And it's a problem. Much has been written about the self-divide that I'm describing. And I have, and you know this, and thank you for listening on a regular basis, you hear many of the people that I reference interviewed on my program, like Charles Murray. In 2012, Dr. Murray wrote a book called Coming Apart. His focus was on a division between the white working class and the white upper class. Murray, in fact, crafted a quiz to make his point. Here, I'll give you some of the questions. You don't have to answer out loud or raise hands. Just think in your own mind. Is your answer yes or no to the following? Have you ever ever walked on a factory floor? Have you ever had a job that caused something to hurt at the end of the day? Do you know who Jimmy Johnson is? Ah, but are you thinking NASCAR? or football? Have you ever bought a pickup truck? Have you gone fishing in the last five years? How often do you eat at Denny's or IHOP? Since leaving school, have you ever worn a uniform? You ever hitchhike? Take a long distance bus trip? Have you ever watched an episode of Dr. Phil all the way through? (laughs) What does Branson mean to you, Missouri or Richard? These questions, he said, could be answered by, quote, ordinary Americans in a heartbeat. And the quiz was designed to show members of the new upper class how isolated they've become. The more yes answers, the higher your score, congratulations, the thinner your bubble, according to Dr. Murray. He argues that when the better off live in gated communities, like Belmont, Massachusetts, which was the example in his book, or the Kensington section of Philadelphia, about two miles as the crow flies from where we are right now, When people are secluded from one another, the less economically fortunate suffer opportunity loss. I read that book. It was very impactful for me because I thought, he's got my number. I'm living a better quality of life than my parents enjoyed. Many of us are, and there's nothing wrong with that. But unintentionally, my time is spent with people who look like I look 
eat where I eat, drive what I drive, and consume the same media. Something else, our kids, they're associating with one another in school, in sleepaway camp, and so unless we do something about it, that divide is going to continue. And oddly, it's all been made worse by something that connects us, the internet. Love Open Table, you know, love Uber, love Waze, but the internet is making self-sorting easier. Bill Bishop saw this coming when he wrote his book, The Big Sort. His premise was that 50 years ago, we disengaged as a society. Fewer Elks Club, fewer bowling leagues, fewer local newspaper subscriptions. And that when we re-engaged in the internet era, we were more easily able to find the like-minded. You know, think about it. You've got an offbeat hobby. No problem. So does someone in Ukraine, and you're now interacting with them. My sons play meta-oculus virtual games with people around the globe. When I grew up in my neighborhood, I played street hockey and Nerf football with the kids next door, my friends. My sons wear headsets. They play video games with people they will never meet. And this connectedness also makes it easier to find the politically like-minded and to avoid interacting with those of a different viewpoint. And think Facebook's news feed. You're also being fed stories online that suit your political interests. So we're having more specialized interactions and fewer common experiences. Murray and Bishop's books, built on the long-standing work of a Harvard political scientist named Robert Putnam, another recent guest of mine on POTUS. It's Putnam who, in the year 2000, wrote a book called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And in it, Putnam addresses the decline of what he terms social capital, our extensive social networks, that which build high volumes of trust. In documenting the decline of social capital since 1950, Putnam was writing about my parents and maybe yours. My dad was a member of the local Masonic Lodge. He was a Rotarian. He refereed high school and college football every weekend. Mom was in Eastern Star, volunteered for the VIA, the Village Improvement Association, a group of women responsible for building the first hospital in the community where I was raised. Oh, and by the way, both of them belonged to the Moose Lodge. Putnam argues that a community's level of social capital is determined by the type of relationships that people develop in exactly these kind of activities. And when they don't exist, we don't help one another. We don't know one another. The less fortunate aren't extended a ladder, just like Charles Murray documented in Coming Apart. And interestingly, and I talked about this on radio as well, 
See, I'm so excited to be here today and to speak without interruption because I can put together all the pieces that are so clear to me now about the big picture of what's going on. I recently talked about Raj Chetty, the Harvard economist who studied zip codes and the social media platforms of 72 million Facebook users. He found that growing up in a community connected across class lines improves a kid's outcome and gives them a better shot at rising out of poverty. The New York Times put his findings on the front page with a headline that says, Wealthy Friends May Be a Ticket Out of Poverty. And from the story, there was this, quote, The study found that if poor children grew up in neighborhoods where 70% of their friends were wealthy, that's the typical rate of friendship for higher income children, it would increase their future incomes by 20% on average. The most amazing part of the Times write-up of Raj Chetty's analysis was this, quote, these cross-class friendships, what the researchers called economic connectedness, had a stronger impact than school quality, family structure, job availability, or a community's racial composition. The people you know, the study suggests, open opportunities and the growing class divide in the United States closes them off. I mean, it's really not complicated. Good things happen when we intermingle and have common experience. Scott Galloway, yes, another recent guest on the program. The NYU professor just joined me on POTUS and on CNN to talk about his new book, Adrift, in it. Scott Galloway documents the decline in community-based activities in the U.S. And what did he cite? Things that would not have surprised Putnam or Bill Bishop. He cited Girl Scout and Boy Scout participation, church membership, and adults who don't talk to their neighbors. He shared research from the UK documenting that residential segregation leads to decreased tolerance of minorities, while residential integration led to improved relationships between groups. And when I asked Scott Galloway on television last weekend about this subject of connectedness, he said that his advice to young people is get out of the house, build something great in contact with others, There's nothing wrong in talking to strangers, initiating conversation, being civil, establishing friendships, or even something that might result in a romantic relationship. The result is perilous. All this separation that I'm describing is making us scared. And it's also distorting the depth of our issue divide. President Biden hosted a group of historians last summer at the White House who warned him that the current moment is among the most dangerous that democracy has faced in modern history. They likened today's unrest with the period leading up to World War II when growing authoritarianism abroad was being echoed in the United States. And it's not just the historians who are worried. In a recent Quinnipiac survey, 67% of American adults said they thought the country's democracy was, quote, in danger of collapse. Pew Research, 85% said the U.S. political system either needs major changes or needs to be completely reformed. 
A CBS poll found that a majority of Americans believe political violence in the U.S. will increase and the country will be less of a democracy for future generations. What a shame. If only the people responding to those surveys knew that there's actually more today that unites us than divides us. Despite the perception, in the last 50 or so years, there has not been significant shift of opinion among Americans on the core issues. That was the finding of Morris Fiorina from Stanford's Hoover Institution, who in 2017 published the book Unstable Majorities, Polarization, Party Sorting, and Political Stalemate. Dr. Fiorina found that the nation is no more politically divided today than we were in the 1970s. Roughly 40% of Americans today regard themselves as moderate. The exact same number as in 1976 when Jimmy Carter was elected president. In his analysis, breaking down the issues under broad headings like government services and spending, health insurance, aid to minorities, job guarantees, defense spending, he found that Americans' position settles in the middle of the scale instead of a maximal or minimal government response. And this holds true even on abortion. There has not been a sea change of opinion in this country since the 70s on abortion. You know who is divided? The politicians, the parties, who have now sorted into narrow groups that don't represent many of the rest of us. What Morris Fiorina calls the political class, the self-appointed activists and donors and partisans in the media, and those who run for office. Yes, they are divided. But they're only about 15% of the population. Like, who knew? They're the outliers. We're the normal ones. Fiorina is not alone. Another data set came out in 2018 survey called Hidden Tribes. It was based on an 8,000-person sample, maybe the largest ever study of polarization. Here's their conclusion. We're an ever-increasingly diverse nation, but there's a loud, hyperactive group of folks on the left and the right who are tearing us apart. You've got about 8% of Americans in the hard left camp. They're almost all white, well-educated, they vote, they give money and time to campaigns, they're active on social media, their combined voices dominate democratic politics. And you've got about 6% in the hard right camp. Similarly, very white, 88%, educated, voting, giving money, active, active on social media. Their combined voices dominate Republican politics. Oh, and those two groups... They do hate each other. So 14% of America, roughly half left, half right, they consistently shout and post and vote, while 67% of the rest of us are somewhere in between. That's the issue. So what do we do? You got to change the channel. I mean, you've just got to change the channel, no matter what channel you are watching, a mixed media diet 
is the only way to find truth in a polarized media landscape. But that's going to address only one aspect of the self-sorting that I'm addressing, and it's not going to be enough. When Professor Putnam was my guest on POTUS recently, he, the author of Bowling Alone, I asked him, where can we find the sense of community that is lacking today in so many of our lives? Where do we bridge our differences? And he rattled off several examples. He talked about student exchange programs, houses of worship, events of volunteerism, places where we're not all the same, to which I added maybe mandatory government service. Not necessarily military service, but mandatory government service. In the case of military, it reminds me of what my father always described about his Korean War experience. You know, day one, guys, because they were guys, from different backgrounds all across country, suddenly reduced to the same haircut, cot, uniform, and responsibilities. Where you came from, what you looked like, what your politics were, didn't matter. In the military, all were one. Except today, even that's lacking. Every branch of the U.S. military is now struggling to meet its fiscal year 2022 recruitment goals. Fewer Americans are choosing to serve their country in this fashion. Other places to mingle. Little League. Youth sports. The workplace, although that's now a problem, because when everyone is remote, we lose yet another place where relationships are forged, including romantic. Scott Galloway, in that new book, Adrift, put it this way, before we can get to intercourse, we need discourse, and our discourse has become too coarse. Well said. Here's a final thought. Getting out of our bubbles and interacting with others and in service to others is not only good for the country, but it's good for us personally. That's the conclusion reached by two physicians based on anecdote and data. Many years ago, one of the authors was my very first intern when he was in both law and medical school. I refer to Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, and his writing partner, Dr. Stephen Treziak, who first wrote a book, you'll remember me discussing, called Compassionomics. And in Compassionomics, they argued that in the context of healthcare, having more compassion for patients actually improved outcomes and bolstered healthcare workers themselves. Patients got better, workers felt better about their work environment. So, Dr. Maz, and Dr. Treziak thought, maybe this works outside of a medical context. So they extended their research beyond the medical world and showed that serving others is life-changing therapy for everybody. Some of what they found. Research shows that over the last 50 years, we as a society have become more and more self-focused. Research says the U.S. is actually the most individualistic and self-focused nation in the world. They're two doctors. Their diagnosis, if you will, is that we've become the me culture. We're suffering from me-ism, and it's literally making us sick. 
were lonely. Rates of depression and death of despair, meaning death attributable to addiction or suicide, are at an all-time high. Despite all the medical advance in this country, the U.S. life expectancy is actually falling. Their prescription is one for which you don't need a blog, you don't need a microphone, you don't need a talk show host, you don't need public office. We need to extend ourselves. They cite research from the University of Toronto, which says that on average, each of us has nine opportunities a day to empathize with someone. That's good for the person to whom you extend yourself, and, they explain, it's actually good for you. I read that and I said to myself, I don't think I have nine opportunities a day. I, I, mine is a relatively, it's kind of funny given what I do, speaking to all of you, but I have a relatively solitary existence. I spend my days in a radio studio surrounded by only TC. TC, who begins every day, no joke, by going to the window in our studio and drawing the blind, taking a picture of the sunrise and putting it in her Instagram account, all the while I sit there, roll my eyes and say, nobody cares. (laughs) Well, maybe I need to bite my tongue then, right? And then I thought, wait a minute, even before I see her in the studio, I've been to Wawa or Starbucks. There's an opportunity for me to be empathetic. When I'm in Wawa, I'm surrounded by two groups of people at that hour, quarter of six. It's it's like men and women in scrubs headed to the hospital and landscapers and talk show hosts. Maybe there's an opportunity there for a smile. I'm good at holding doors. There's a place where you can easily extend yourself. Something else that'll sound self-congratulatory, but it happens to be true, I've always treated my radio guests and callers with dignity and respect. Because I can't do what I do without all of you, particularly those of you who call. I... I mean, it really takes a lot. I don't think I've hung up on somebody in, in the last six months, maybe a year. Carlotta. Carlotta, okay. Did I think of that first or did one of you think of that first? Is she banned or is she not banned? I don't know. I don't know. On a typical day, on a typical day, I probably put 50 live callers on air a day. I mean, we, you know, the lightning round, right? We try, I try and get everybody in and treat them well because I want them to call. And I don't want it to be lopsided, one-sided, of just one political viewpoint. So I think I'm covered there. On a typical day, I know I can improve my telephone and email etiquette. They can use some improvement. Apparently, some people don't like all caps. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> I guess I can wave to that guy who's driving that UPS truck on a loop down my driveway. The conference calls with my CNN team, sometimes a little short. The studio hand who puts me on the air on Saturday mornings, my makeup artist, those who run my website. Heck, nine opportunities to show empathy. I probably have 50 in a typical day. 
And shame on me for needing academics at the University of Toronto to tell me how to fix what ails America. Because I've heard it before from our housekeeper. Grace Snags was actually so much more than that. She worked for our family in a domestic capacity for 30 years, helped my wife and me raise all four of our children. In fact, when our daughter had a baby one year ago last month, she gave him a middle name, Grayson, as an homage to Grace. When Grace was sick, late in her life, we experienced a role reversal. She moved in with us, and we became her caretaker. Grace was from Tobago, had a big heart, loved to sing red, red wine while doing laundry. (laughs) As I wrote about her, when she thinks I'm too involved in affairs on the home front, which is often, she'll call me an anti-man. Only as pronounced by Grace, it's anti-man. Michael, you're being an auntie-man again. She had a head full of island sayings, things that have hung with me. And one stands out. She would say, always remember, you don't know if their roof leaks unless you're inside with them. You don't know if their roof leaks unless you're inside with them. So true. So true. We all have things going on in our lives. I wrote a newspaper column about her. It included that advice. My written homage to Grace one day became a eulogy when she passed. I was sure to include that quote. That column struck a chord. Everyone who gathered graveside understood what I was saying. Men, women, young, old, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, all religions, Republicans, Democrats, and independents. And I think there's a lesson in that. And that is my message for the unconvention. Thank you very much. The Smirconish Podcast from SiriusXM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Thank you for that. Hey, my timing is such that there's only an opportunity for a comment or two, TC. Got it. Shall we do that? Let's do that. Great. Okay. Hi. Hey. I'm Sharon from North Carolina. I've called a couple of times. Are I- you sure you're from North Carolina? Because I'm not, I'm not sure if I can buy that. Okay. Alabama. Nice. Alabama. Thank you for being here. I want to say that I really, people come in my store in Asheville, where I'm from, and I say, do you know... Michael Smirconish. They go, no. They, they're from your town. This radio station needs to be available to everybody. There's so many people that don't get this station that should. Listen, thank you for helping me to spread that word. You know what's coming. It's a plug not only for the radio program on POTUS, but the newsletter. I mean, I'm, it, you're not having to... Pay. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I mean, I... I think it's the best way that I can win converts is to give them... Listen, I'm going to say this nicely. It's a pain in the ass for me at 4.30 in the morning to be picking links for that newsletter. But I do it because I so believe in the need for balance. So I'm giving you 20 links a day that I've hand-selected that for all across the political spectrum. And you don't have to... They're paywalls. I can't handle that. But scroll through it. Share it with your friends and, and show them what balance looks like. I think you're up there, TC, real quick. I'm way up here. Okay. And if anybody wants to say anything, wave to me so I can see you. Here we go. Michael Gregg from Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Thank you, sir. Up, I'm up here. Okay. Michael? I, yeah, I know. You're up there somewhere. <laughs> what, he's up here somewhere? Okay. Say what you want to say. Hurry. What I, what I love to hear is what... what, what you mentioned the kids on, stuck on the bus on the turnpike. Yes. What age should we be introducing these concepts to the children of this great nation? As soon as they're cognizant. I mean, as soon as they have a sense of, of awareness, right? You've, you've got to point out the, the injustice that comes from being tethered to one end of the political spectrum or the other. I, the, the rule in our house is I don't care, as, however you've registered, you're going to vote. Uh, doesn't matter to me if you're an R or a D, just make sure you are a participant. But preach balance from Jump Street. TC, go ahead. Hey, Michael. Uh, it's Drew from Montgomery County here. Thank you so much for this. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were. You br- touched it briefly on the role that uh, economic elites sort of uh, dictate the policy. I don't know that I can say more than I've said about the social science Dr. Murray talked about the uh, 
he wanted to leave race off the table. And so he focused on whites who were upper class in communities like Belmont, Massachusetts, versus those in the Kensington section of Philadelphia. I thought he made a very compelling point that people who look like I do and earn what I earn and live like I earn, we have a responsibility. And when we're so isolated and clustered, whether you have a real gate or it's a virtual gate, and you've shut yourself off from the less fortunate, you're doing real harm to society. Because as that Raj Chetty data from Harvard exhibits, the best way that folks who are less fortunate economically than you, the best opportunity they have to raise up uh, is by living with and associating with people who are doing better than they are financially. So quickly, quick final comment. Got one here. Go ahead, real quick. Was there, a, talking about the trends toward yeah. polarization, was there a triggering event in your mind that may have been kind of if you... Yes, put- I gave it to you. 1988 is the year to circle. The, the, the year that Rush gets placed into syndication, and I'm not blaming it all on him, but I'm telling you that was the year that there was a change in the way we do this. And Trump going to New Hampshire in that cycle... That's the one I circle. Others will tell you it was Gingrich in the 90s. I don't buy it. I lived it. I had a front row seat. Okay. Thank you for allowing me to get all that off my chest. The Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.